Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Repentance, the Entire Life of the Believer. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 1st, 2017. Just a few weeks from now, on October 31st, 2017, the town of Wittenberg in Germany will celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church, thus kick-starting the Protestant Reformation. The town, which has a population of about 50,000, is expecting 400,000 tourists this year. Beginning next week, Journey with Jesus will feature consecutive guest essays on the Reformation from five different perspectives, Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, and Eastern Orthodox. So stay tuned and check in. I recently read the new book by historian Martin Marty. It has an interesting title, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther and the Day that Changed the World. How was it, asked Marty, that a young monk at a new university in an obscure little town touched such a nerve as to convulse all of Europe and, eventually, the whole world? It's right there in Luther's Theses Number 1, says Marty. Theses Number 1 reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended the entire life of believers to be repentance. You'll recall that in the Gospel of Mark, the first words spoken by Jesus call us to repentance. This, says Marty, was the focal point of all 95 theses, even an obsession with Luther. The biblical claim that one is made right with God, not through any human effort, but entirely by divine grace through faith. Luther's idea, writes Marty, touched the human heart at its deepest font. And so we read in Ezekiel this week, chapter 1832, Repent and Live. In a culture that has forgotten how to blush and that counsels us to never apologize and never explain, Ezekiel's words sound archaic, perhaps even dour, but for those of us who want to live Christianly, repentance is central to life rather than peripheral. It's essential rather than optional. And contrary to modern misconceptions, when done well, repentance is entirely life-giving rather than death-dealing. It's a movement towards wholeness rather than a descent into self-hatred. Repentance best takes place in a church community, but it's ultimately a personal act rather than an ecclesiastical ritual. Luther insisted on this point as he tried to recover the explosive power of the gospel that he believed had been encrusted with 1,500 years of arbitrary church authority and tendentious traditions. Luther was attacking the medieval sacramental system of penance, 
and especially the buying and selling of indulgences, a sort of bribe paid to the church which purported to reduce one's penalty for sin. Appealing to the original Greek New Testament, Luther insisted that Jesus did not prescribe a complicated ritual that required the believer to confess to a priest, purchase an indulgence, or repeat so many Hail Marys, as suggested by Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible in the 5th century that had held sway in the Western Church for over a thousand years. Rather, in a way unmediated by rules, regulations, and formulas, we simply, if radically, repent before God himself. In this sense, repentance can be quite simple, as observed by the Syrian abbot John Climacus of the 6th century in his Ladder of Divine Ascent. He wrote, Let your prayer be very simple. For the tax collector and the prodigal son, just one word was enough to reconcile them to God. A single word might do, but genuine repentance is also a lifelong style of life, which is to say that it's also a complex process that acknowledges the ambiguity of our fallen human condition. Since we will never know perfection this side of heaven, there will never be a time when we don't need repentance as our friend. After we had been married a number of years, my wife and I decided to retake some diagnostic tests that we had taken in premarital counseling. I wanted to see if and how we had changed. The answer, at least according to the tests, was not much. When I asked my psychologist friend about my meager progress and prospects for genuine change, based upon his years of clinical experience, he only shrugged. Well, for most people, change is complex, slow, and incremental. So, with Luther, we can say that repentance requires our entire life throughout our life. In the Gospel this week, Jesus offended his listeners when he observed that decidedly immoral people like prostitutes and tax collectors understood repentance better than religiously righteous people. The religiously righteous wrongly believe that they are better than they really are. They imagine they don't need to repent. Moral outcasts have no such illusions, nor the need to hew to social conventions that protect us. They know how bad off they are. I learned this lesson the hard way when a therapist once informed me that my test scores indicated that I scored way high on the built-in fudge factor that smokes out answer patterns that are too good to be true. No, said the therapist, you were not as good as your answers insinuate, nor will this test let you fake it. In fact, your fudge factor is way beyond the standard deviation. Jesus further observed that children are also better at admitting their faults and failures than adults. My wife had a second grader who once drew a picture of a fierce rhinoceros with a disturbing and unvarnished admission as a caption. The little child wrote, I'm as angry as a rhino. In her book, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, 
Kathleen Norris writes about a little boy who wrote a poem called The Monster Who Was Sorry. In the poem, the boy explodes about how he hated it when his father yelled at him. In anger, he threw his sister down the stairs, wrecked his room, then destroyed an entire town. His poem then concluded, Then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I should not have done all that. Commenting on this little boy's poem, Kathleen Norris writes, My messy house says it all. With more honesty than most adults could have mustered, the, mo the boy made a metaphor for himself that admitted the depths of his rage and also gave him a way out. If that boy had been a novice in a fourth-century monastic desert, his elders might have told him that he was well on the way toward repentance. Not such a monster after all, but only human. If the house is messy, they might have said, why not clean it up? Why not make it into a place where God might wish to dwell? For further reflection, a favorite prayer from a monastic called Arsenios in the 5th century. My God, do not abandon me. I have done nothing good before thee, but grant me in thy compassion the power to make a start. For books this week, I review a title by Doug McAdam and Karina Kluse. The title, Deeply Divided, Racial Politics and Social Movements in Post-War America. New York, Oxford University Press, 2014. This book is 396 pages long. With the election of Barack Obama back in 2008, some people hoped for a post-racial or colorblind error that would moderate our political partisanship and address economic inequalities. But in fact, the opposite appears to have happened. According to McAdam and Cluse, the country is now more starkly divided in political terms than at any time since the end of Reconstruction, and more unequal in material terms than roughly a century ago, greater even than on the eve of the Great Depression. Their book, Deeply Divided, explores how and why this has happened. Not too long ago, centrist politics reviewed as a problem and not a solution. In 1968, for example, the third-party candidate for president, George Wallace, complained that there was hardly any difference between Democrats and Republicans. Or, to take another example, it used to be standard wisdom for candidates to appeal to their partisan bases in the primaries, but then to seek the centrist vote for general elections. This began to change with the 1980 election. The unique contribution of this book is that it moves beyond the analyses of political parties and institutions 
to the importance of social movements, both left and right, as a driver of American politics. These social movements, like the Civil Rights Movement or the subsequent white backlash, exerted a centrifugal pressure on American politics. They write, they began to force the parties to weigh the costs and benefits of appealing to the median voter against the strategic imperative of responding to mobilized movement elements at their ideological margins. A recent article in the New York Times made this exact point, that some Democrats now want to quote-unquote win it all, whereas others in their party would be happy to make a centrist appeal and just win anything. In particular, McAdam and Cluse pay special attention to race and region, and how they interact with social movements to impact our politics. Consider a place like West Virginia. For about 70 years, it was a strongly democratic state. One thinks of Robert Byrd or Jay Rockefeller. But since the 2000 election of Bush, it has voted Republican in every presidential election. And in 2016, every single county voted for Trump. Similarly, there are the recent books by the conservative J.D. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy on Appalachia, and the liberal Arlie Hochschild of Berkeley about Louisiana, the title Strangers in Their Own Lands. But then comes a discouraging paradox. Whereas this movement toward political partisanship does characterize our political parties, activists, and elites, it does not characterize the general public. On any number of issues like health insurance, defense spending, or abortion, the general public has favored centrist positions for over 30 years. In fact, we see any number of polls that show how disgusted and discouraged people are about partisanship and government dysfunction. Doug McAdam is the perfect person to untangle his Gordian knot in the time of Trump. He's the Ray Lyman Wilbur Professor of Sociology at Stanford University and the former director of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. He's the author or co-author of 18 books and some 85 other publications in the area of political sociology with a special emphasis on race in the United States, American politics, and the study of social movements in contentious politics. He was elected to the membership in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2003. Once again, the authors Doug McAdam and Karina Kluse, the title Deeply Divided, Racial Politics and Social Movements in Postwar America. For movies this week, I review a new documentary called Saving Banksy. This one-hour documentary considers the crazy mashup of conflicting interests that have developed over the street art of graffiti artists who now apply their trade all over the world. The graffiti artists risk arrest and imprisonment in order to enjoy an adrenaline rush or to make a political statement.
even though their art form is temporary, since their work will almost certainly be painted over in mere hours. Municipalities and cities, of course, construe street art as vandalism and often force building owners to bear the cost of removing it or risk fines. And now, the best street art of the most famous artists is being removed without the permission of the artist and then sold to galleries and auctions with the artist getting nothing. The most famous street artist is the secretive and anonymous Banksy, who came to San Francisco in 2010 and left a trail of public works. The story follows the many complexities of a person who wanted to remove a Banksy painting from a San Francisco building and donate it to a museum for public viewing. Talk about the complexity of artistic provenance. The film is narrated by a famous London-based street artist named Ben Ein, one of the very few people to actually know and work with Banksy, and it incorporates numerous other people like him. For another Banksy film, see the award-winning movie Exit Through the Gift Shop. This film, Saving Banksy 2017, is on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poetry, we continue with some of the poems of Scott Cairns. This is called Further Possible Answers to Prayer. And as for hell, your hell is deep chagrin a deeply wrenching circumstance in which the soul no longer managed to skirt what's what. The fire? Well, that rich searing is my tenderness as felt by all who have for so long worked to mute my tenderness. The only demons then in play will be the ones you've carried with you, the cohort you have wed and fed, whose offspring you have borne. Acute chagrin, which the soul, so long as she is willing, so long as she is not absolutely dead, may one day shed. Further Possible Answers to Prayer by Scott Cairns Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 1st, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.